You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, hoping to make fresh soil from which new life might spring. In this episode, our eighth, we're talking food, faith, and especially fauna. How do we chomp Christianly in a world where so much of our diet is based on animal suffering on an unimaginable scale? And more broadly, how do more than human animals feature in our grasp on what's going on in the world? So I'll be talking with Professor David Clough about humans and other animals, including live transport, the extinction crisis in Australia, how that relates to the climate emergency, and more broadly, the relationship of animal ethics to ecological ethics. Today, we're recording on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. So I'm here with David Clough, Professor of Theological Ethics at the University of Chester, who's just finished a term as President of the Society for the Study of Christian Ethics. He co-wrote Faith and Force, a Christian debate about war in 2007, debating just war and pacifism in a 21st century context, and has recently completed the landmark two-volume monograph on animals, on the place of animals in Christian theology and ethics. He's the founder of CreatureKind, a project aiming to engage Christians with farmed animal welfare, and he's principal investigator for a three-year UK Research Council-funded project on the Christian ethics of farmed animal welfare in partnership with major UK churches and compassion in world farming. He's a Methodist lay preacher and has represented the Methodist Church on national ecumenical working groups on the ethics of warfare and climate change. Welcome, David. It's an honour to have you on The Good Dirt. It's really good to be with you, Byron. Thanks for the invitation. Part of the reason why you're able to join us is that you're not midway through. You're, you're at the very end of a month-long tour of Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, talking about your new book. Do you want to tell us a bit about that book? Yes, thanks. So I've spent um, the last 10 or 12 years working on this two-volume work on animals. First volume, Systematic Theology, so asking where animals belong in Christian belief. And the second volume, Theological Ethics, trying to ask the question about what that means for Christian practice and our use of other animals in, in various ways. So volume one addresses the question well about where animals belong in Christian belief. It's divided into three sections, uh, Doctrine of Creation, Reconciliation and Redemption. Doctrine of Creation asks what creation is for and counters the uh, answer that's given at some places in the Christian theological tradition that creation is all about us that God made everything for the sake of humans. Mm. And I present the argument that Christians have got good reasons for rethinking that and rethinking uh, a doctrine of creation as God creating for the glory of God and for the sake of each particular creature. I then ask about what Christian belief means in terms of God's work in Jesus Christ and argue that even when we think about incarnation and atonement, we've got really strong biblical and theological reasons for thinking about God's work in Jesus Christ as for the benefit of the whole cosmos. Uh, rather than just uh, human beings. And then finally in volume one, I address the doctrine of redemption, ask what it means uh, for Christians to believe what God is bringing the world to. And again, challenging an anthropocentric, human-centered view that says that uh, the doctrine of redemption is all about us and instead outlining biblical and Christian theological traditions that take a much more generous and encompassing uh, vision that see redemption as more than a monospecies event uh, with the rest of uh, creation beyond the human discarded. So that's the argument about uh, of volume one, Christians have got strong faith-based reasons for being concerned about other animals. And then volume two asks in detail, what are we doing as we use animals currently for food, for textiles, for labour, uh, as research subjects in our experiments? in our sport and entertainment as pets and companion animals and what are our impacts on wild animals and I'm seeking to convince uh, especially Christians that there are really radical implications uh, for a Christian understanding of animals that challenge our everyday practice. That sounds fascinating and I really look forward to exploring some of those implications this hour and then we're actually recording just before the next Peace Talks event here at Paddington Anglican, where you're our speaker and you'll be particularly digging into the topic of food and faith and the radical implications for our diets of what it looks like to take seriously the idea that God's purposes are bigger than just humanity. 
And uh, so I, I look forward to exploring that. Can I ask a little bit about the genesis of the book for you? What, what led you to this topic? Why have you spent a whole decade on it? That's a good question. I turned vegetarian when I was 18, as soon as I had direct responsibility uh, for the food that I was uh, ordering and eating as, uh, as I went away to university. It seemed clear to me that I'd prefer to be adopting a vegetarian diet rather than one that depended on the suffering and killing of animals. And it took me a while to make the connections with the concerns about um, milk and other dairy products and eggs, but that took me towards uh, vegan practice fairly quickly. What disconcerted me and has done for a while is that many fellow Christians don't seem to see the same links that I do between Christian faith and our responsibilities towards other animals. And even, you know, it's a rare concern among Christian theologians and even Christian ethicists and so part of understanding what I was trying to do in the book is to take time to work as carefully as I could to set out what seemed to me the place of animals in Christian theology and ethics in a way that I hoped would capture the attention of fellow theologians, ethicists and the church at large to try and see if other people uh, agreed with my conclusions that there seemed to be a, a very significant disconnect between the kinds of things Christians believe about fellow animal creatures as creatures of God and the way we're treating them at the moment. You've mentioned a couple of times that your primary audience is Christians, that you're, you know, you're a Christian theologian and a lay preacher, that you are exploring underappreciated aspects of the Christian tradition, seeking to give old answers to new questions, as it were, but by asking those new questions, we end up with new practices, because as we rethink the traditions of the church and the teachings of the scriptures in light of this set of questions, it raises a dissonance between our practice and our convictions. I guess I'm wondering, are there aspects of your project that speak beyond the church? What Do you have anything to say for those who might not be followers of Jesus? How, how does this book speak beyond the church, or is it particularly and especially and only to the church? So I, my primary audience is definitely Christians. The, I mean, one of the things that I have in mind is that um, often people have come to the conclusion recently that Christians have specific reasons not to care about animals. So mm. if you read the atheistic Australian utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer, yeah. um, who published the landmark work Animal Liberation in the late 1970s, he thinks that Christianity is the root ideological cause of the justification of exploitative relationships to animals and so we need to challenge Christian understandings of God and the Bible before we can get people to care about animals, people of faith. So I'm interested first in addressing fellow Christians in relation to deconstructing some of the reasons that Singer and other people have convinced Christians that they've got reasons for not caring about animals Mm -hmm. and then drawing attention to a really significant history in which Christians have played a major role in advancing uh, concern for welfare of animals. So in Britain, for example, in the 19th century, prominent Christians like William Wilberforce and others are part of lobbying for the first legislation against animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, and this is strongly counter to Singer's thesis, at a time when prominent scientists and uh, medics are resistant to any regulation about the new practices of vivisection, which are being conducted without anaesthetic at at that time. It's grassroots Christian groups who get that this is a faith-based issue, that the strong shouldn't be exploiting the weak for their own ends, and and they start all kinds of uh, movements. So I really am uh, interested in uh, reminding fellow Christians about this history, but I think the project is of much broader interest. Um, first of all, the kind of practices I'm describing of what we're currently doing to animals, I think, aren't well understood either within or without the church. So mm-hmm. I think the work I'm doing in volume two about just narrating our, what we're doing to animals uh, is of broad interest. But also I think that uh, many residual attitudes uh, about thinking about humans and other animals in many developed countries have a legacy of Christian understandings of animals that have have now drifted into wider secular culture without a great deal of critical thought. And so I think a lot of our practice is still governed by some of uh, the foundational structures in Christian thinking about animals. And so there's a much broader interest in bringing that to uh, uh, light, uh, reconsidering that legacy and working out what it might mean. 
picking up on that reference to the 19th century and William Wilberforce. Am I right that Wilberforce and the Clapham sect were also instrumental in establishing the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Protection of Animals? That's right. You've got an ecumenical group of Christians along with one prominent vegan Jew called Louis Gompertz who set up the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals which later gets uh, the royal uh, bit uh, appended to it. So that was a really significant advance for the cause of animal welfare in the UK and had broader international implications as well. Yeah, and it's an organisation that's still around and still well respected in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, listeners, it's part of the history that listeners are going to be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that it turned out um, in the late 19th century, the RSPCA um, had very strong relationships with political elites in the UK and so they didn't want to touch the issue of vivisection mm. and so that was why these new organisations uh, were set up in Britain to challenge vivisection but yeah the RSPCA has done really really important work in many uh, countries and yeah that's an important Christian legacy. I was also interested in your phrase there about the strong not exploiting the weak and applying that Christian principle that's at the core of so much of Christian ethics perhaps part of the reason why this isn't a topic that gets treated much in Christian ethics and why that principle hasn't seemed obvious, I wonder, is that the bounds of our moral community get drawn at the edges of Homo sapiens. And so to take that principle of saying the strong ought not to exploit the weak and apply it to our relationship to other animals implies an expanded view of our moral community that other creatures belong within the realm of Christian discipleship and belong within the realm of God's interests. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about some of the theological convictions that lead you to that assumption or that conviction. Yeah, I think this is really fundamental and it seems to me to pertain even to something as basic as monotheism. Mm. If you worship a God who is the God of all, then you're committed to the idea that all creaturely life is uh, dependent on God for not only its creation, but um, ongoing care. And, and so even that starting point seems to me to be challenging people of faith to a really broad engagement with what it means to recognise ourselves as homo sapiens alongside the myriad other kinds of creatures uh, that God made. And that's affirmed throughout Christian scripture and in uh, Christian theological tradition, as well as uh, in other uh, faith traditions. It's really striking to me that we may have lost things that were a common understanding in earlier periods. So, for example, when Jesus is reassuring fearful disciples that they don't need to be afraid, he says that you know that not a single spa- that not a single sparrow falls uh, without your father or is forgotten by your father. So he's counting on that as being a generally accepted teaching mm-hmm. among uh, the Jewish audience that he's addressing. And it's on that basis of that belief uh, that even the tiniest of insignificant, apparently insignificant creatures is beloved by God, that the disciples can be reassured that they're uh, loved by God because Jesus says, you're worth more than many sparrows. We tend to rush to the end of that teaching uh, and be looking to say, oh, that's great. We're much more important than other animals without realizing that the whole reassuring message only works on the basis of this non-negotiable point of God's care for even the most apparently humble of God's creatures. And so I think there are really important uh, resources in a Christian understanding of things that is at radical odds with the sense that just all of non-human creation is mere material for our own ends. Mm. And we're talking about the big idea here of humans and other animals. And by framing it that way, other animals, it deliberately places us, Homo sapiens, in a biological context as one of the 10 million or so species of life on Earth uh, within the animal kingdom, and which therefore emphasises our commonality with other creatures in the community of creation. But even as you're speaking about sparrows and God's care for life beyond the human, I'm sure that there will be some listeners uh, who might be uncomfortable with this emphasis, wondering if it undermines some of our cherished notions of human specialness. So if we're another animal, is there anything special about humanity that distinguishes us uh, ethically, theologically from other species? So I think we need to hear two different things at, at once here. First of all, as you say, I think Christian theology has a strong common ground with uh, a biological understanding of life to recognise that human beings are one among many creatures and we have strong relationships with that wider 
creaturely world. So one consequence, I think, of a Christian doctrine of creation is to recognise ourselves as creature kind, one kind with all of the other creatures that God has made. And that's really important because sometimes there are Christian theological perspectives that have suggested that human beings are sort of awkwardly poised midway between angels and animals. Mm. Uh, it seems really important to me to stress what has been common ground you know, across the Christian tradition that humans are one kind of animal. You know, Thomas Aquinas, this towering figure of uh, Christian theology in the 13th century, was entirely at ease with the received Greek definition of the human, that humans were the rational animal. Mm. And so it's only, I think, fairly recently that we've become more uncomfortable with the idea of identifying ourselves as one kind of animal. And so we, we need to recognise that there's actually nothing theologically at stake in recognising our co-animality and co-creatureliness with other creatures. But yes, we do also need to face the question about what makes us particular. Mm. And there are various biblical and theological reference points for that. And so in Genesis 1, God says, let us make humankind as images of us. And we need to think about what that might mean, what it might mean for humans to be images of God. I think there's been bad ways of interpreting that in the Christian tradition. First of all, people have tended to pick their favourite thing about being human, uh, like rationality, for example, and then just assume that's what's meant by image of God. That's been really, really unhelpful in relation to various thinking about within the human sphere, let alone beyond it. It suggests that less rational humans are less imaging of God than more rational humans, like university professors. I think that's a really obviously bad idea and way of thinking about things. As well as perhaps blinding us to some of the rationality in the more than human world, that you know creatures are able to form intentions and ideas and um, plans. Yeah, drawing a, a sharp line on rationality both uh, has dangers in how we treat certain humans, but also affects our vision and what we even see when we look at other creatures. If we expect to see dumb brutes, then that's all we'll notice. Right, so it's a bad idea in very many respects. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad interpretation of what image of God might mean. Yeah. Uh, and it's also uh, erroneous in uh, attributing uniquely to humans the power of rationality. We've got yeah. all kinds of examples, almost more on a daily basis, that come out in the news about all the things we're learning about uh, the cognition among non-human animals. But I think we do need to uh, pay attention to what is particular about mm-hmm. uh, the human. The way I like to talk about the what, what it means to image God is to think about that as a task and a responsibility rather than a status symbol. You know, we tend to want to wear that as a sort of shiny star on our chest rather than recognise that to be images of God to uh, fellow creatures is a really seriously weighty responsibility. A great deal of our practice at the moment is not imaging the God that Christians claim to worship, but is instead imaging some kind of awful, tyrannical, uh, despotic deity, only concerned about others as they're uh, serving uh, the deity's own ends. It seems to me, if we took really seriously what it would mean to image the God that Christians witness to, to fellow creatures, the implications would be really radical. Historically, it hasn't just been rationality that's been picked up as the favourite bit of humans. Sometimes it's been things like language use or tool use. And these have similar drawbacks, I assume, in terms of understanding the image of God, but there does seem to be something about humans in our agency, our capacity to, sh- to consciously shape our environment. Is there something there about human distinctiveness that relates to imaging God? So we are heirs to a long history of really bad answers to what is unique about humans. And you refer to tool use or language use um, as particular examples. And it's really clear that um, other animals are, use- are tool users in all kinds of ways, even tool makers in mm. lots of ways. Uh, And the more we learn about um, communication uh, among non-human animals in different ways, the more implausible it becomes to recognise language as a uniquely human uh, possession. So it seems like all of these attempts to define what is unique to human fall victim to um, our increasing knowledge about other animals. But one thing that is conspicuous is a human power over other creatures, which reminds us in uh, perhaps an unpleasant way about the text Uh, neighbouring that one about being images of God in Genesis 1, where God grants dominion Mm -hmm. over uh, other uh, creatures, dominion to humans. And that's the kind of uh, verse that Peter Singer tends to point to and lift out of context that says, here's where Christians have seen uh, the the legitimisation of exploitation of other, other animals. 
And then if we think about what that means, so in, the, in our current relations to other animals and the, the wider creation, it's really striking that there's a increasing calls for the current geological era to be named after us mm. as the Anthropocene, as a measure of this unprecedented influence that human beings are having over a wider environmental system that could be recognised even at a geological uh, level. Now, I've got some hesitations about whether it's wise to name a whole geological era after us. There seems to be some kind of sneaky heroism uh, about human capacity there, as well as a recognition of our own responsibility. But it seems to me we do need to take responsibility for our capacity to dominate uh, in relation to other creatures, to wield this completely unparalleled power over other creatures, and that that ought, ought to be something about what it's particular, what is unique and particular about being human, that is highly relevant to discerning what might be our ethical responsibility in relation to other creatures. You know, if we're capable of this kind of power and this uh, kinds of uh, impacts on the whole planetary systems. That means we've got to take really serious responsibility uh, for what it would mean to image God through that kind of influence rather than I image this tyrannical despot. Mm. So we're talking here about the big idea in our first section. Part of this goal of this podcast is to be composting the news. And so uh, we're talking here about ideas in theology, about God and humanity and other creatures. I'm wondering how do these ideas shape how you view the news? Does it mean you pay attention to different news stories? Does it mean you notice gaps in the news? How does your work over the last decade on this topic, how has that shaped your approach to consuming the news? I think a very great deal of what comes up as news items turns out to reflect uh, massively dysfunctional practice and thinking in relation to our relationships with the wider creaturely world. All the news that we're currently engaged in in terms of evidence of uh, a climate catastrophe seems to me to speak directly to this radical dysfunction, our inability to recognise what might be responsible co-living alongside uh, fellow creatures and are pushing against strong uh, limits in planetary ecosystems. So that seems to me to, to be uh, a very significant component of you know a dimension of, of what's coming up again and again. And the current examples of people responding to that with protest and uh, civil disobedience in terms of, try of trying to try to challenge uh, the, the status quo and business as usual seems to be highly material to what it would mean to think in a, uh, an informed and faith-based way about what's going on. And we'll dive into some specific news stories in just a moment, though I, I do notice that there was a, uh, on the topic of civil disobedience in the face of the climate crisis, uh, a large group of doctors, this wasn't one of the stories we were about to talk about, but a large group of doctors wrote an open letter recently calling for uh, civil disobedience as entirely appropriate in the scale of the crisis we face from the perspective of public health. We have multiple reasons for reconsidering how we're approaching our relationship to all the rest of creation, and one of them is the impacts on our more than human neighbours. Let's dive into our second section of what's going on. We've got a few news stories to discuss. The first is one that uh, you, David, pointed out to me um, that actually comes from the Times of Israel. And the headline is, in first, agriculture ministry admits to cruel conditions on animal transports. Veterinary inspector says common problems include injury and suffocation from overcrowding, high temperatures, poor ventilation. And this is a, a news story that comes from Israel and a controversy happening over there about the animals that they are receiving on their transports and the awful conditions, conditions that many Australians have become much more aware of in the last few years because of the stories we hear about our export of our livestock. Uh, and it turns out that this story is about animals from Australia. So this is like the other end of the chain. It's not only us here in Australia who are noticing the horrendous cruelty involved in stacking thousands of animals uh, live onto crowded ships in poor conditions, but uh, also people on the receiving end. So I'm wondering, what is it that this issue in particular of live animal transport reveals about our relationship to other creatures and the limits or challenges to our empathy? The issue about live exports from Australia is a really interesting and particular one for Australians to uh, reflect on. And the 
Israel example is interesting because I think it shows the potential for there to be uh, solidarity and common working at both ends of this process. So I'm aware that lots of Australians have been active in trying to challenge uh, the process and I really like the idea of uh, working in common with the people receiving these animals who are also recognising the the dire cruelty involved in uh, this kind of practice. I think it fundamentally demonstrates that we're thinking of animals primarily as uh, commodities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the location geographically doesn't matter. And if it's more economically effective to ship these animals as uh, live creatures rather than as meat products, then that's what the the market will incentivize. And that's what those involved in the the meat industry uh, will uh, deliver. And it seems to me it represents a a real uh, extreme in relation to the problems of animal agriculture and the way that interacts with international trade at the moment. If we had any regard for the one million sheep and one million cattle that are being exported each year from Australia at the moment, it seems to be really obvious that subjecting them to this long journey, so for sheep to the Middle East, that's about around 20 to 25 days on Mm. on uh, board ships where they might be experiencing temperatures of up to 40 degrees Celsius at uh, at different points in, in that journey. And as revealed in that Israeli report, uh, animals are dying through suffocation and, and then in, in many countries at the end experiencing very uneven and poor welfare at slaughter in relation to the, their destination. About a million cattle are going to um, other countries, some to Israel, some to uh, Indonesia um, and other um, Asian countries. If we begin to think about what it would mean to regard those animals as fellow creatures, it would be a really obvious first step to be saying this is a kind of practice that as a country we're not prepared to put up with. Mm. Um, New Zealand uh, did stop exporting animals for food uh, recently, although when I was in New Zealand I discovered that um, exporting animals for breeding is still permitted and so there's a slight grey area uh, there and so that still needs countering in a New Zealand context. But it's, you know, New Zealand has a very profitable big export meat industry and so it really demonstrates that while there might be an economic incentive to do this, you can uh, make uh, you can have animal agriculture profitable without the extremities of live export. Yes, that's right. We're not talking about the end of all animal <laughs> agriculture, nope. but um, it's it's slight variations in the profit margins. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether you know, to put it perhaps slightly melodramatically, we find it easier to picture the the, the tears of the shareholder losing. Uh, you know, a slight bit of profit, having having their their freedom to maximise their profits curtailed, than we do to imagine um, and and enter into uh, empathise with the experience of these sentient creatures who suffer for the sake of that profit. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of this, which I think is really interesting, is one that points to the intersectional the intersection with human social justice issues. Mm. So I've seen reports that currently meat packing plants in Australia are only operating at 80% of capacity. And the reason for that is not a shortage of animals to process or a demand for their products, but a difficulty in getting workers prepared to do this uh, work. This is Mm. really unpleasant work. It's subjecting workers to high levels of physical uh, injury. Many are leaving with symptoms like post-traumatic stress disorder. The meat industry is highly dependent on migrant labour, mm. and so very concerned about immigration controls under the current government that would be uh, reducing their access to uh, migrant labour. And so I think one of the concerns about closing down live export is that there'd even be greater demand for meatpacking plants here, and then even more need for people to do these awful jobs, which are you know disproportionately held by people with uh, low socioeconomic status, migrants. Um, undocumented migrants um, Mm. and members of ethnic minorities. Once you begin to realise the way these different issues uh, intersect and why the meat industry might be quite so resistant to uh, closing down uh, this practice, we get into the middle of how very often when we're doing nasty things to other than human animals, we're doing nasty things to uh, humans in these systems as well. And that really is an excellent response to uh, a common objection to talking about animal ethics, which is well, first we've got to look after humans properly, and then once we, you know, we can we can move on to the lower priorities after that. But as you point out, that these issues, as so often with issues of injustice, are intersectional. The connections between the exploitation of human labour and human bodies, uh, and uh, other animal bodies, um, in the meat industry and uh, elsewhere, 
uh, often goes hand in glove. That pursuit of profit, in this case, you know, drives corners to be cut wherever they can be found. And even if that comes at the cost of human welfare or animal welfare, the root cause is the same for both of them. I think that's a really, really crucial point. In most of the priority issues for action in relation to the animal ethical issues that I'm uh, describing, it's not a choice between whether or not we uh, prefer taking actions to benefit the environment or to benefit human welfare or to benefit domesticated animals or to benefit wild animals. Mm. The most important actions uh, are, would be, bring obvious benefits across the board in relation to all of those uh, constituencies. And so whatever of those issues people are concerned about, paying attention to what we're doing to domesticated animals, especially in the way we're raising them for food, uh, is a really clear uh, priority for action. Yeah, and this has been a big theme of this podcast, that ethics isn't a zero-sum game that's simply a power play between the interests of different groups trying to squish each other, but there's a, an opportunity, a call, a possibility of exercising moral imagination to discover win-win situations, mm-hmm. and that often as we r- respect ourselves more, respect our neighbour more, uh, honour God more, these these things have synergies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just as there can be vicious cycles, there can be virtuous cycles as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an excellent example of one of those. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our second story. And this relates to a recent ABC Four Corners episode, first broadcast on Monday the 24th of June, called Extinction Nation. And it was a detailed investigation into the current state of the biodiversity crisis in Australia. And I'll read a little bit of the blurb for the episode. Australia boasts a stunning array of unique wildlife. They feature on our coat of arms and they place front and centre in our tourism campaigns. But the reality is many of our native animals are in danger. Australia has one of the worst extinction rates on the planet and the problem is growing. There are currently more than 500 animal species under threat. And I'd add that we know about. Mm-hmm. So this Four Corners investigation explores some of the causes of that crisis and the, the current paralysis in our political system and the, the absence of our environment minister. Uh, and, you know, as a foreigner to these shores, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into some of the details of our political uh, life on this one or expect <laughs> you to know the name of the environment minister. Though I challenge our readers, how many of you know the name, our listeners, I should say, how many of you know the name of our environment minister? Because she has been remarkably absent from her post during most of the time in, in that role. But I do want to ask, as a visitor to this land now called Australia, what have you noticed that is distinctive about this place? Whether that's distinctive about the wildlife, that unique flora and fauna that you know features in our tourism campaigns, as the ABC said, but also what might be distinctive about our social life, our political life, our culture, How does it feel different here to your home in the UK? On my flight here, I was recommended to read uh, Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu, which I understand you've discussed uh, in other podcast episodes. Yeah, with Brooke Prentice in episode two in particular, but we've, we've touched on it a few times since then. Yeah. So the experience of reading that... And then I read another book uh, by Virginia DeJohn Anderson called Creatures of Empire, which looks at the uh, colonial practice of bringing livestock to New England and Maryland. Mm-hmm. To read both of those books and then arrive as an Englishman in Brisbane with all of that colonial uh, history in my head was a very striking experience. When I was walking in New Zealand, I began to realise that any species that I recognised was likely to be a, a species that my English forebears had, had brought with us or, or, mm. or others had along the way. And I began to think when I uh, returned to uh, speaking in Australia after I uh, visited New Zealand uh, this month, I began to think about that as a more general rule. Anything that I recognised was in the wrong place. Mm. And that's the case in relation to uh, worshipping in Brisbane Cathedral the day after I arrived, for example. Everything was very, very familiar. Mm. Uh, and as I reflect on it now, that means that that's displaced. So I wonder, and this is something that I would advance humbly and uh, hesitantly as a visitor uh, to these shores, I wonder how far that colonial patterning is still very highly determining of a great deal of thought and practice here. I'm very struck by Bruce Pascoe's point that colonial practices in relation to livestock are actually one of the key features that's uh, devastating of both Aboriginal, sophisticated patterns of Aboriginal management of the land and also biodiversity in Australia at the time. And so the sheep, even in advance 
of the colonialists, even maybe before the colonialists even get to see what's going on, have already destroyed the land through eating plants down to the ground and compacting the soil with their hooves. And so our practice in relation to livestock means that we need to recognise sheep and cattle as literally invasive species that completely changed uh, what Australia uh, looks like, both in relation to uh, the indigenous peoples who were making uh, a good living here, but also in relation to the wider patterns of diversity, biodiversity. And I wonder how far Australia at large is, is, is really thought through the implications of that and how far patterns of thinking are still overdetermined by that particular history. Yeah, no, I think that's a really helpful observation to hear from an outsider because the history in Australia of viewing particularly sheep as quintessentially Australian goes back a long way. You know, and the, the phrase that the Australian economy was carried on the sheep's back in the 19th century. And speaking personally... It actually wasn't until I spent a few years in Scotland and started reading people like George Monbiot uh, and others about the damage of the sheep being brought onto the Scottish Highlands um, and the displacement of the traditional cultures there um, by sheep and the ongoing suppression of the regeneration of forests that happens. You know, so it was hearing about the destructiveness of sheep back in the UK that I first really had the thought about how destructive they might have been in Australia and then reading Dark Emu, as you say, is a revelation of the settler colonialists probably didn't even realise how destructive the sheep were because the damage, a lot of the damage was already done even before many settlers turned up as the sheep moved in, in some cases ahead of the farmers. And the really striking thing for me when I began to read my way into this particular intersection is to find that this practice was of one group of people, a privileged group of people, displacing uh, less privileged people who were using land for growing arable crops uh, by bringing uh, livestock onto the same land. This was a pattern even going on within England before Mm. the beginning of the colonial period. So Thomas More's Utopia Mm. discusses man-eating sheep, the sheep that are destroying uh, the, the livelihood of poorer people within England. And so the way in which this practice is initiated in England and then reproduced in North America and South America in relation to European colonists and then in Australia and then in New Zealand and, you know, God knows where else. That, you know, just that rep- pattern of repetition. Mm. Um, the patterns of colonialism began internally. Yeah, and livestock and our relationships with other animals were a key part. I'm really struck by how my British forebears were trying to reproduce a particular understanding of what a civilised society looked like. Mm. And a major determinant of that was the domestication of livestock. You needed to domesticate livestock and have that practice in order to have a recognisably Christian civilised existence. And any time we find that term civilised and Christian together, we need to be really, really concerned because it's a proxy uh, in many cases for the white supremacist attitudes which were so dismissive of the complexity of the societies that they were encountering. And that had, as you say, ecological consequences. It also had legal consequences through the concept of terra nullius, that it's only those who are working the soil and have livestock on the soil who can own the soil. Uh, And so indigenous uh, peoples around the world, and particularly in Australia, were viewed as not the rightful inhabitants of the land and therefore able to be legally displaced from it. And this legal fiction was at the heart of the story of colonialism in Australia. We've discussed that on previous episodes, but that, uh, you know, these things are all connected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our third story, which is about the climate emergency. And uh, just this last week, the city of Sydney, the local council area, has joined with hundreds of other councils around the world and with a number of national governments in officially declaring a climate emergency. The city's councillors voted, I think, unanimously that climate change poses a serious risk to the people of Sydney and the rest of Australia and called upon the federal government to respond urgently to this emergency. This was a movement that I think had its roots in the UK with the Welsh and Scottish governments being the first national governments to pass Uh, a symbolic recognition of a climate emergency followed by the UK Parliament in Westminster, not the UK government, but the Parliament passed that recognition. Subsequently, the governments of Canada and Ireland have also joined in. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis also used this language of a climate emergency. 
And it's it's a recognition of the scale of the threat and that we are no longer in a place where we can address the climate crisis through incremental, gradual business as usual, that there is a something has emerged, there is an emergency. Um, but I guess I'm wondering about your reflections on this language of emergency. What does it reveal? What might it conceal about our climate situation? Yeah, I'm really supportive of the group's and Extinction Rebellion is conspicuous among them, along with Greta Thunberg and the school strike movement. I'm, I'm really deeply sympathetic with the sense that there is a need now urgently to challenge pra- uh, business as usual. It seems like we've got national and international political systems which have demonstrated themselves to be incapable of responding with uh, appropriate policy changes to the climate crisis that we're facing. And therefore, the, the rising up of citizens to protest that status quo is is not an option seems to me really important. I'm part of a group called uh, Ethicists Without Borders who um, published a statement recently uh, signed by uh, a large number of Christian ethicists saying that direct action, non-violent direct action in relation to the climate crisis is uh, an appropriate action and a responsibility in many cases for, for Christians. So I'm really, really supportive uh, of that. And I'm when we say non-violent direct action, I just want to spell out what that means for some listeners who might not be familiar with that phrase. Yeah, so in London, one of the things that most caught people's attention was Extinction Rebellion planning a whole series of actions that were bringing significant parts of the city to a halt. Uh, So they were uh, camping in the middle of bridges and intersections, uh, stopping traffic uh, flowing. They were even stopping public transport uh, moving by climbing on the top of tube trains and all, all kinds of other major disruptive actions. That was uh, non-violent in the sense that it wasn't directly destructive of uh, people or property, but it was uh, majorly disruptive uh, and certainly caused a lot of frustration and uh, antagonism. Another component of non-violent direct action is that you accept responsibility for your actions. So this isn't hidden or or actions that are are trying to be... um, Covert sabotage. Yeah, trying to get away with anything. And so people are accepting responsibility for what they've done getting arrested and then in many cases being charged and uh, taken through criminal and court processes. But it seems to me preparedness of citizens to get involved in actions of this kind is a very positive development which suggests to governments that there is a, a significant range of public concern which they need to respond to. And in the UK you can see shifts in public attitudes as a result of these actions. Uh, so it seems like in the UK at least though that kind of action has not triggered a response that says, oh, these awful uppity environmental protesters, you know, we're, we're going to have nothing to do with them. Instead, it's demonstrably helped to highlight a crisis and shift public attitudes towards being uh, positive about public policy responses. Yeah, I was struck by the uh, some polls showing the, how widespread public support in the UK for the Extinction Rebellion disruptions mm-hmm. uh, have been and the school strike for climate, which is also a form of non-violent direct action, mm-hmm. uh, civil disobedience, where mm-hmm. the students are being truant from school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being absent um, mm-hmm. without permission from school in many cases, and in some cases facing disciplinary consequences for that. The breadth of non-violent direct action extends from there through to those directly blocking the actions of uh, coal mine or, you know, there were 6,000 uh, activists in Germany recently and hundreds of them um, uh, again, they've done this every year now, I think for the last five years, went and, and disrupted some of the massive, massive coal mines that they have there, uh, and hundreds more went and blocked uh, rail uh, lines. So there's a wide variety of things, activities that we're talking about that in- include both the direct disruption of the fossil fuel economy as well as the disruption of broader society to bring attention to the crisis. And so some of these actions by individuals and civil society may be understood in light of the climate crisis being an emergency. Perhaps we, we, we could discuss that some people have some concerns with this language of an emergency, in essence being worried that it can justify governments who may already lack a firm commitment to uh, civil liberties. It may justify governments taking non-democratic actions, you know, justified through the language of an emergency. Do you have any thoughts on, on that concern that some people have? I think we've really got to watch out in these days for um, that kind of action. So um, I think naively for some time, I was very concerned about climate change, very concerned about governmental inaction. 
But I think in a fairly naive, optimistic state, I'd assume that when things became clearer and clearer about climate crisis, governments would be a little bit too late and or a lot too late and a, a lot too little, but eventually re- responding in ways that were positive and constructive in the right direction. I think what's currently happening in my country in Britain in relation to this complete uh, political dysfunction in relation to Brexit is significantly climate crisis related. Mm. So the Syrian refugee crisis mm. had a sim- uh, substantial climate element, and it was the and that led to uh, a l- large numbers of refugees seeking uh, refuge in uh, various parts of uh, Europe. Uh, Britain didn't take anything like its share. But the image that Nigel Farage used um, for the UK Independence Party in uh, in relation mm. to the referendum of Syrian refugees sort of queuing up on a border was part of what enabled the success of a, a referendum for Britain to leave the European Union and is part of what's behind a great deal of the catastrophic politics that my country is currently uh, embroiled in uh, at the moment. And so there's a real danger that the political response to uh, climate crisis is not finally realising the need for international collaborations to address the problem, but is uh, seeking uh, to put up bigger and bigger walls in order to try and protect uh, countries from the inevitable implications in relation to uh, the the, the flow of refugees from places of parts of the planet that we've, we've made uninhabitable through our actions. And so we need to find ways, those, those who recognise and, uh, and are determined to, to resist that, we need to find ways of both calling for the kind of action uh, that we need in relation to climate crisis, but also be continuing to recognise that unless we can do that climate work intersectionally with attention to uh, the, the sort of racist and white supremacist attitudes, which are becoming more popular in many parts of the world as a result of the refugee crisis, and unless we can work on climate and the anti-racist and, and, and pro-migrant work, we may find um, some of our best instincts being abused uh, yeah. for the wrong ends. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, as you point out, I don't think the UK is unique in having its current political dysfunction linked to aspects uh, of the climate and ecological crises that we face. Similar parallel stories can be told in this country and in uh, many others. Uh, And the the rise of xenophobic, authoritarian, uh, nationalist movements um, in in many places around the world is a predicted and somewhat predictable, depressingly, response to uh, increasing disruption in the global order one of the significant drivers of which is growing climate and ecological disruption. Uh, So it's not just ecosystems and the other animals who live in them being disrupted, but also human ecology. As you point out, it's it's crucial to keep these issues connected. When I actually, when I, I'll tell a little story. When I first came back to Australia from studying in Scotland and had a, a particular focus on climate and wanted to do my little part in an Australian context on this topic, I had some friends who urged me to be silent about other issues, to not speak either as a Christian or as a citizen uh, about other political issues or theological issues in order to present a small target so that it would be harder to dismiss me. Um, but increasingly, I found that advice just too narrow because it's impossible to talk about the climate crisis without linking it to all these other injustices uh, and to broader patterns in society that we face. So I think this has been really helpful to explore some of those uh, factors just now. Let's move on to our fourth story, which is an open letter written this week by over 150 faith leaders in Australia to the Prime Minister urging Scott Morrison to block all new coal and gas projects, including the Adani Carmichael coal mine in Queensland, and also urging the government to set ambitious targets of moving to 100% renewable power by 2030. These are actually the demands from the School Strike for Climate movement being picked up by these 150 faith leaders. And full disclosure, I I was one of the signatories to that letter, um, which got some coverage uh, in, in various parts of the Australian media. But my question to you, David, is what is the role of Christians and the church? What specifically do faith communities like the church have to offer in the face of these broad systemic issues, which as we have just acknowledged are global, are complex, are interconnected. Is there anything specifically Christian to contribute here? So I think the first responsibility of faith communities in the context of these kinds of questions is to go deep in relation to their texts and traditions, to be asking what the current context and the pressing issues of our day 
how that looks in the context of the, these you know deep and complex uh, traditions of thought and inquiry. And the reason why that matters is I think there are resources within religious traditions for helping to us to think well and address uh, these uh, kinds of issues. And there's also work, deconstructive work to do. So it's deeply uh, concerning, for example, that uh, white evangelicals in the United States are the least likely to be uh, recognising the need uh, or the existence of anthropogenic climate change, or let alone the need uh, to address it. And so there is a kind of deconstructive element for Christians to be involved with uh, in, in, in that context, to be mm. trying to make clear the you know, faith-based rationale for uh, being concerned about this. I, I think positively in relation to what Christian engagement might have to contribute to uh, you know, wider public engagement with, with this uh, material is to bring wisdom about how to th- connect up issues that seem disparate in the way that we've been uh, describing is uh, really strongly necessary. So, for example, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si makes connections between recognising the earth herself as sort of mother and sister and someone that we're harming through our actions, but is also linking that through uh, references to uh, South African liberation theology with the cry of uh, the poor and with the plight of uh, animals. And it seems to me that there's a, a capacity for good Christian thinking, uh, you know, in concert and drawing on other uh, religious and, and secular uh, traditions to be providing resources for helping us to recognise that there is no way uh, to go forward in a, in a be- beneficial way that doesn't address these in a, things in a, in a holistic way. I mean, hmm. part of what's wrong with the way we've been practising is a, a problematic spirituality, a failure to recognise that we are creatures among creatures, that we have uh, responsibilities in relation to this wider world that we can't uh, merely expand our own interests uh, without restraint and connecting these things back up to a, a spirituality and a, a, a religious wisdom I think does have the potential to engage some constituencies that have not yet been reached by you know the, the arguments for, for action. And perhaps provide something of that broadening of the moral imagination that we referred to earlier mm-hmm. where we're able to see as you say, ourselves as creatures amongst creatures, and so the flourishing of the entire community is at stake, not just how do I defend my little patch and make sure that I'm okay. Good luck to the rest of you. Yeah, I'm, I appreciate the need to make arguments that re- refer to human well-being in, mm. in the context of the climate crisis, but I confess to being uh, slightly demoralised uh, when I see some of these reports uh, that say, okay, we're, we're about to place a million different plant and animal species at risk of extinction, and the reason why that matters is because it might make life non-viable for humans um, on Earth. It seems to me that religious traditions have got language for being able to explain why it might matter that creating these mass extinctions matters for itself, mm. and not merely because of the later consequences uh, in terms of the viability of human life on Earth. We need to be encouraging and nurturing a vision uh, that says all of these different creatures have um, their place on earth and for our practice to to threaten the the well-being of these fellow creatures of God is already a problem. That's right. And the kind of instrumentalist thinking that can only see an other, whether it's another animal or a human neighbour, as an instrument in my project is precisely part of the spiritual roots of the crisis that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Mm We'll move on to our third segment, what do we do? We've already been touching on this throughout uh, and as a ethicist you can't help but continually be drawn into not just the question of who we are and what's going on but what now do we do about it. And as usual we'll give three answers to this question, trying to draw together some of the threads of what we've been talking about, offering a concrete immediate suggestion that people can do today. Um, suggesting something to read or watch that's going to deepen our grasp on these issues and then suggesting a deeper life commitment towards justice that might be more challenging but perhaps also more transformative. So I'm wondering David what what immediate action if if there's one thing that you think people could do listeners could do even today as they listen that will help them take a first step in in a good direction what would that be? Okay I'm going to cheat slightly and uh, identify two simple things it Mm -hmm. seems to me 
really obvious from the work that I've done engaging uh, Christian faith traditions with our practice in relation to industrial animal agriculture, that there are two really pressing needs that are morally obvious and I think almost uh, controversial. I've been speaking for about a month now and nobody has stood up and said, no, that doesn't make sense, uh, David. And the two things that I've been commending First of all, we need to reduce consumption of animal products. Mm -hmm. And second, for any remaining products we're consuming, we need to pay attention to the welfare sources um, and how animals are being treated uh, within them. So looking for ways to reduce consumption by shifting to uh, more plant-based foods. And then if we're continuing to consume animal products, paying attention to how animals are treated in their production. Excellent. And your website, CreatureKind, and that organisation that you helped to found, uh, does that have resources to help people do some of that thinking? Do you want to say a bit about your organisation there? Yeah, thanks. So three years ago, um, as I got, as the end was in sight about this academic work, um, the two-volume work on animals, I began to think, well, what next? And one of the things I realised I was ambitious for was for this work to have an impact, not just merely within Uh, academic theology but within the life of uh, churches and Christian institutions as a whole. So we set up this organisation CreatureKind, uh, myself and Sarah Withrow King uh, as co-directors. You can find that at becreaturekind.org and what we're aiming to do is to provide resources for Christians to engage with the topic of animals as a faith issue uh, and particularly with attention to farmed animal welfare. So on that website you can find, for example, uh, a six-week small group course for uh, churches or other interested people asking where animals belong in Christian belief and practice with video uh, materials and Bible studies and discussions of theological texts and leaders' guides and even menu suggestions for a simple plant-based meal you could serve at the beginning. And We've had lots of feedback that people are finding that a really good way of beginning conversations within their uh, Christian communities. But we're also interested in working on uh, institutional food policies. So there's lots Mm. of organisations that have Christian values and we're interested in challenging them to say, do you agree with us that Christians have got particular reasons for being concerned about uh, the animals we're using for food? And if so, would you like us to help you identify some strategies where you could reduce consumption and look for opportunities to move to higher welfare sourcing? As always, all the links and stories that we discuss will be included in the show notes that go along with this podcast I think we've also been moving into the more ambitious um, (laughs) suggestions here uh, because one of my questions, as listeners will know, is often just not how do we change our behaviour as consumers, but how do we change our practices and the stories that we live by as citizens, as human beings, to see systemic change, not just a reduction in my personal contribution to the bad stuff in the world, but how can we actually be building a better alternative? And so I think you've already started to suggest some of those system changes there. Do you want to say anything more on that topic about seeing changes that go beyond just what's on my personal plate? Yeah, I'm really keen to encourage fellow Christians and other people of faith to pay attention to the way we eat together. So eating together Mm. is a big deal uh, in religious communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so paying attention to to our values as we connect with what's being served up in churches, other Christian institutions, other faith-based institutions, seems to me a really powerful resource beyond just merely individual choices about food. Uh, So beginning conversations in all of those different institutions about what would it mean to connect up our values with the kind of animal products that we are serving seems to be a really big potential issue. One spin-off from CreatureKind that I'd like to mention is the project Mm defaultveg.org, which is suggesting to any organisation that one simple, green, animal-friendly policy change you could make if you do any kind of events catering, so catering for conferences or meetings or any kind of thing where you're inviting people to something and giving them food, switching to a default vegetarian, vegan option for catering and asking people who want to eat meat to tick a box as uh, to request that as a special diet is a really interesting zero-cost green sustainable option that any organisation could take up and it sort of circumvents uh, some of the standard objections of you're taking away choice from particular people about what they want to eat. Everyone can still eat what they want but uh, the macro effect of changing the default is a significant decrease in animal products consumed in institutional contexts and so I'm, I think that could go viral quite quickly if people pick that up and propose it in institutions of any kind that they uh, live or work within. Now, we also usually recommend a book or a film, and uh, so I'm wondering, is there a book that you want to recommend? (laughs) 
Well, I think everyone should read uh, On Animals, Volume 1 and 2, obviously. If you're more interested in the ethics, Volume 2 is where you'll find uh, detailed descriptions of how we're currently treating animals in in all these uh, different spheres. But I hope lots of people will find the work I'm doing in terms of connecting Christian theology with animals and then Christian ethics across that two-volume work um, a useful thing to consult. The book tour that you're on at the moment, you've been uh, having many speaking engagements around the place and a number of those have been recorded and tonight's talk uh, will be amongst those. So we'll also include a link to some of your uh, lectures uh, during your current tour so that people can get a more of a sense of the book as well uh, in, in that way. Do you have a preferred way for people to obtain that book? Is there a, a site that you think is particularly useful? Uh, well, it's published by uh, TNT Clark Bloom, which is an imprint of Bloomsbury. Um, so uh, people can find their way to the Bloomsbury uh, site alongside other online retailers. No, I think it is good to recommend alternatives to the monolithic giant mm-hmm. because, again, there's another intersectional set of issues there Indeed. for discussion another day, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I think we're just about out of time. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. This is the bit where the music comes back in and you start to fumble for the controls of your phone or device where I remind you to share and comment and subscribe and do all the things that make this little community grow. Thank you, David. I'm so pleased that you are able to make time on your busy book tour this month to fit in this podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing your lecture tonight at Peace Talks and thank you for your wisdom and insight for your faithful testimony on behalf of so many of our most vulnerable and overlooked neighbours. Thanks, Byron. It's been really good to be here. Thanks, listener, too, for sticking with this little podcast experiment, one in which we're continuing to dig into realities that stink and are sometimes, frankly, repulsive. Composting teaches us that what seems least pleasant can be the best place to see fresh ground being made. So let's get our hands dirty, and perhaps we'll see new shoots of growth amidst the muck. Our producer is Simon Bunstead. Music is by Francis Preve. I'm Byron Smith, and this is The Good Dirt. <laughs>